we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today. It is a Tuesday afternoon. Scott Radley sitting in for the vacationing Scott Thompson this week. Three guys are accused of stealing over 100 pages of notes and lyrics for songs including Hotel California, Life in the Fast Lane, and New Kid in Town from Don Henley of the Eagles. Uh, and then trying to sell them. They got caught. Now they're in court. Their lawyer says they're innocent. Who knows? Uh, but I want to bring in Alan Cross. He is the guy behind a journal of musical things. Uh, one of the great music writers and commentators and historians. And if it's about music, Alan is your guy. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, before we get into this, I, I got to say, we all we often talk idiot criminals. How do you possibly steal the lyrics to one of the most famous songs of all time and then think you could possibly sell this without someone asking some questions about this. All right. This is kind of a convoluted thing. It goes like this. Sometime in the late 1970s, a biographer, an author, unnamed, we don't know who it was, was given or somehow came into possession of uh, somewhere between 80 and 100 pages of notes from the Eagles. And that's among those pages included some handwritten lyrics to New Kid in Town, Life in the Fast Lane, and Hotel California. He never, uh, he got those pages because he was supposedly going to write a biography of the Eagles. Don't know what happened to that project, but whatever the case was, he never gave the pages back. Now, back then, this sort of stuff wasn't as valuable as it is today. I mean, if it's the late 70s, Hotel California is just a successful album. People are doodling lyrics all the time. Not such a big deal. Anyway, he hung on to them until 2005 when he sold them to one of the three guys in this case, who's a rare book dealer, a collectible guy in New York. And uh, he also had a couple of other guys that he was involved with that uh, tried to peddle these lyrics to Sotheby's and Christie's auction houses. Don Henley somehow got wind of all this and said, uh, the, the, these lyrics, this, this, this is my property. Now, of course, this handwritten stuff has rocketed in value since 1978 or 79. And uh, they're mine, and I want them back. Well, they said, no, we came into them to them honestly. We were, we purchased them. They're, they're ours. If you would like them, you can buy them back, <laughs> which is something <laughs> you, uh, you don't tell Don Henley because he <laughs> be, he's very uh, protective. Strong-headed. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, he launched uh, a, a police report. And uh, this somehow escalated to the point where uh, these guys were arrested after one of them tried apparently, allegedly, to come up with a fake providence. He says, no, 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 these, these lyrics actually um, uh, belong to Glenn Fry, a member of the Eagles who died in 2016. So... Now he's also being, along with the theft, he's also being accused with faking the provenance of of these documents. So the three guys were all arrested. They were all uh, taken to uh, taken to, uh, to court and appeared in, in front of a judge uh, and charged, formally charged with all this stuff. They say that they're they're innocent because uh, of of. You know, 
really sure why. They, other than the fact that they, they said that they... Well, they didn't steal it, they're saying. They, they, well, didn't, they didn't steal yeah, it, they're they saying. They came into the possession of yeah. these. Right. And not only that, they bought them from, from, from this guy. The, our, our, our quibble is not with you. It's uh, your, or your quibble is not with us. Uh, your quibble is with uh, maybe the guy who had this these lyrics in the, in, in the beginning. So uh, they're they're currently facing these charges. There's a long list of them. If convicted, each one of them could hold, uh, could get up to four years in prison. And what makes this really awkward is that one of them, the lead guy in this, is a curator and director of something for the uh, acquisitions for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation in New York. So it doesn't look really all that that good for them because he's supposed to be a curator of rare and interesting rock and roll memorabilia, and now he's being accused yeah. of, of stealing some stuff. I, I was amazed. Now, I know this is not just one song, and there's a lot of different things in here, but when I first read this, I was thinking there could not have been 100 pages of notes to come up with Hotel California, but it does say something, I guess, about... The in, how involved coming up with the lyrics for songs where you know it's not "Love Me Do" and "Love Me Do" was an amazing song by the Beatles, but you know not exactly the deepest lyrics of all time. You start figuring out what you're going to write for Hotel California. It's not surprising it took a while. Well, no, of course not. And like I said back then, these were scribbles that nobody thought would have any future value. I mean, if you were to find the lyrics of "Love Me Do" right now, uh, they would be worth millions as well but to yep, have yep. The, uh, the the sketches for the hotel california album uh, available in one sheaf or in a number of sheafs uh i mean that's really valuable if you've ever been to the rock and roll hall of fame in cleveland you'll know that all they have all manner of this sort of stuff behind glass as you're not allowed to touch and and even if if uh, those who do touch it touch it with um they're they're wearing special museum gloves so you don't hurt anything um so it's it's going to be interesting to see because i'm sure that there's a lot of this stuff floating around lyrical fragments oh no doubt uh arrangements set lists you know anything like this that can have a of uh, value, something that would be sold for big money at auction. Well, it and, becomes really interesting because what happens with any memorabilia? I mean, if Glenn, if if um, Don Henley, if as you're describing this, if if they can make the case that these were given to someone who then it was his then, so he did something with it. But if that's the case, could any piece of memorabilia that was thrown from a stage or was given away, could the, uh, could the artist come back now and say, Hey, I, I wasn't real. I, I'd like that back. It's really mine. That's, I mean, it's a well, tough argument to make. It is a tough argument to make. Uh, and again, we don't know who this original author was. and We don't know the circumstances under which he came into possession of these lyrics and these notes and sketches. So uh, it, it's it's good. This is this is going to go to trial. There's no question about it, mm. and we're going to see exactly how this plays out because the rock and roll memorabilia market is so very very valuable right now that uh, people will be watching this extremely closely, and this will have this could, could potentially have an effect on the kinds of memorabilia and who sells this memorabilia at places like. Uh, well, there's like I said, there's there's Sotheby's, there's Christie's, there's Julian's, and a, yep. a bunch of others. Got to be real careful now. 
Got to be careful. Uh, listen, Alan, I wish we could talk. We never even got to the part that in another day, what is this song really about? Because he won't talk <laughs> about it. But, you know, on another day, Alan and I will dive into that one. Now, listen, always appreciate the time, Alan Cross. Thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. How do we possibly get the people to do the stuff we need to do? That was what was being discussed with the uh, federal minister of labor in town. That is Seamus O'Regan, who was here in Hamilton talking about this. Uh, Mr. O'Regan joins us now. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Scott, good to be here. Uh, you were here talking about getting more people into the workforce, especially the skilled labor workforce. Uh, we need apparently tens of thousands more, maybe over the next decade or so, in the hundreds of thousands more. Where are we going to find these people? 30,000 people. That's how much uh, Leona is saying. And that's one union just in Ontario. They're looking for 30,000 more people. So, I mean, that's a lot of jobs. We need more people in, uh, in the skilled labor trades. Um, you know, these are the people who, who, you know, build the houses that we need. They're the ones who, uh, you know, lower the emissions we need to lower. They're the ones who basically help move our economy. They build stuff. Um, they maintain stuff. Uh, and it's the stuff that keeps this country together. And, and trust me, you get a very clear-eyed view of this once you become Minister of Labor. But to be honest with you, even as Minister of Natural Resources, which is the position I held before this one, you, you, you get a very, you know, clear line of sight on on uh, on how important workers are to to this country and to its prosperity so where do we find them um some of them are in underrepresented groups and the most significant one i would say of all of them would be women we need more women 50 percent of the population is way underrepresented in the trades the trades would be the, those guys who are in the trades would be the first ones to tell you that so getting our heads around what is it you know what can we be doing to attract more people in trades whether they be young or old or whatever how do we get them in? What are the barriers that are in the way? Um, that's been a lot of what we have discussed, I would say, over the past couple of days. Big things, small things, but, but things that are really important in order to attract people who may not have thought about getting into the skilled trades as a livelihood. Is that what it is they haven't thought about it? Because I'm looking at this saying if we've got all these jobs, if Leuna's saying we need 30,000 right now, there's 30,000 available jobs that mm -hmm. people have not already flooded to. So what do we do then to get them to flood there? Because clearly there are openings, whether you're a woman or a man or a minority or whatever, they're there. How do we get people to them? Yeah, well, and, and remember too that, you know, we want to get them into the training in order to be able to, to enter into those trades. So, you know, I was up at uh, the new training center that Leona has up in, uh, in Grimsby. Uh, I was just there just about an hour ago, to be honest. And, uh, and you know, we've, uh, our government's been helping fund some of the machinery and equipment that people there use in order to learn uh, how, to, how to go about not only their trade, but also to go about it safely. Uh, in fact, we were looking at some of the students who were, who were there who were, you know, trying to figure out or were learning, I should say, uh, how to make sure they don't fall. I mean, what are the right protocols if you're working on a tall building, on a large building, to make sure that you don't fall? That, that is one of the, uh, you know, top reasons for, for injuries and, and fatalities in, in the business. How do you make sure that people are safe? When, when the protocols are right and people have the right training, it is an extraordinarily safe occupation, but it's making sure that people do. So the people who are involved in the skilled trades are, you know, they are professionals, they are highly skilled, they are trained that way. How do we get more of those people into the training? Uh, like, you know, in, initially, you know, a lot of people point fingers at guidance counselors in high schools who, you know, may not, particularly young women, uh, skilled trades may not come, come top of mind. We got to start doing that. But the biggest barrier, actually, is just parents. And so to any parents who are out there listening, who are, uh, you know, on their way uh, home from work, perhaps, or maybe on their way to work, uh, and they're listening to your show, if, if 
you know, if they've got kids who are contemplating what to do for the rest of their lives, make sure you give them the broadest range of choices possible. Because right now the opportunities are real and, and, and they exist in skilled trades. These are the people that we need right now in order to keep the economy of this country going. And the upside is they, are, they pay extraordinarily well and the work is meaningful and purposeful. Um, you know, it's not to everybody's taste, but it is to a lot of people's tastes. And we just want to make sure that we match up good people with good jobs. And I mean, look, it sounds terrific, and, and, and I think it would be terrific, uh, but again, I look and I think, you know, we've just heard in recent weeks, we just came through the Ontario election, as you well know, and we heard we need tens of thousands more PSWs, we need tens of thousands more nurses, now we need all these people in the skilled trade. I mean, there are only so many people who apparently are interested or willing or want to or are available to work. So at some point, do we, do we need to follow the suggestion that Doug Ford had the other day that says we need to bring more immigrants into to Ontario to fill these roles. Well, you know, right now, I mean, we've got we've got an interesting situation, and you're right to point to you know the limitations. First of all, I, and I can tell you, somebody who's sitting around the cabinet table when COVID first hit this country and, and and the pandemic swept the world, if you had told me in two and a half years' time that Canada would be confronting uh, a record high employment rate and a record low unemployment rate. Uh, I, I wouldn't have believed you. And yet here we are. This is the situation that we confront. So I am grateful to have this problem as a labor minister to deal with. Um, you know, I'd also note that, you know, we are bringing in more immigrants now than we ever have. And there's probably, I don't know, of any country in the world that is as successful at integrating uh, new immigrants into our, into our country as successful as Canada is. I don't know of one. Um, and we do that because even though we're bringing in a record of, you know, 400,000 plus people every year now, uh, we make sure that, you know, we get that balance right to make sure that they are absorbed into the economy. So, you know, turning on the taps uh, is, is not as easy as it sounds. We've got to make sure that people, you know, are, are brought into this country and can contribute and that we've got the social safety net and the infrastructure capable of handling that level of, uh, of new immigration into the country. So I wish it were that easy. It's not. Um, but I can tell you right now, we do have many people in this country uh, who, you know, may, may be contemplating a different line of work. And I can tell you that you look around, I mean, I work in the trades all the time, and this is something they acknowledge too, Scott. Uh, you know, women are sorely underrepresented. Indigenous people are sorely underrepresented. And uh, in many indigenous communities, I'm a former minister of indigenous services, and many uh, First Nations, Inuit, Métis communities, you are seeing a, you know, a far younger demographic there than you see in the rest of the country. So we've got a real opportunity there to introduce them to the skilled trades, and, and particularly in northern communities where we have so many natural resource projects, we can match them up to some very, very meaningful employment that is very near where they live, which is what a lot of people also like. So we have untapped potential in this country. I want to make sure that we... You know, we realize the full potential of the workers who are already here. That is Seamus O'Regan, uh, Federal Minister of Labor, is in town uh, to talk about this. I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate the time, too. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting scenario in the CFL this week. Last week, the Ottawa Red Blacks were playing the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and one of the Rough Riders took a cheap shot at Ottawa former Hamilton quarterback Jeremiah Masoli did some damage to bones in his leg. He's going to be out for three months or so. Usually that's where these things end. The league gets in, they offer a suspension or maybe not, and everybody moves along and that's where that goes. Not this time. Jeremiah Masoli went public with a scathing statement against the Rough Riders, against the player who hit him, against the league, kind of 
scorched earth here on pretty much everyone. Rick Zamperin is uh, not only the host of Good Morning Hamilton here on the show, he is also the host of the fifth quarter. This week you can hear him after Saturday afternoon's game here on 900 CHML, whether you are sober or otherwise, as occasionally happens. Rick, how are you today? I am sober, I can confirm that. <laughs> well, unless you count <laughs> Pop-Tarts as being an intoxicant. <laughs> yes, highly intoxicating. So... I don't, the closest I recall to something like this was two or three years ago when uh, Zach Caleros was drilled in the head by Simone Lawrence and it was a late hit and he kind of said something that was a little bit pointed, but not to write something and put it out on Twitter and scorch everybody involved. This was, this was kind of shocking to see this. Well, I think there's a little bit more to this than the hit on Simone Lawrence, and I remember that well. I think that was play number three of the 2019 season, and Simone, I believe, if memory serves me, got a two-game suspension, which he appealed, and it took about a month or so to resolve. This one, as I said, is a little more to it because we have several different uh, tentacles or or layers, if you will. Number one, the hit. Uh, Number two, uh, the the ridiculous celebratory Uh, nature that Garrett Marino exhibited following the hit and after getting ejected from the game. And number three, the racial, or as the CFL is calling it, heritage uh, undertones to what was allegedly said on the field. And Jeremiah, really in his note, in his message on social media today, is is pointing to all three of those and then some, because he's not only saying... And then at the team too, and then at the team and their coaching staff as well. Exactly. Yeah, it's the hit, it's what was said, it's the celebration, it's the um, appalling... Um, you know, reasoning from Craig Dickinson, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders head coach, uh, saying that Garrett's engaged to a black woman and he has a lot of black friends and there wasn't really an apology. And, it, you know, if I'm Jeremiah Masoli, I'm probably sending out the same message because it's appalling at what the at what the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, A, the player, what he did, and B, what the team then followed suit with. I was just blown away and I'm, I can only imagine what Jeremiah was thinking. And and he's a mild-mannered guy. I mean, the most mellowed guy you can find on this earth, which is now scorched, because what he said uh, earlier today is, I think uh, in, in his right, he really painted the, the, the clear picture that this was a heinous hit. It was um, a, a ridiculous celebration afterwards. Uh, a lack of respect for his fellow football brother, if you will, and then for Coach Dickinson to come out later on and and give all these excuses. Uh, phenomenal. It's phenomenal how this all transpired, and I still can't believe what we've been through over the last week. Well, and, and we also left out the fact that he also takes a shot at the CFL saying they didn't do enough with the racial insults that a one-game slap on the wrist is yep. insignificant and insufficient. And part of the reason, I'm always convinced, part of the reason why you don't see this stuff more often, this not the play, this kind of note, is I think a lot of players realize, you know, we're one play away from one of the guys on our team maybe being in a position like this, and now it looks bad if I've just, you know, slammed someone else and one of our guys does it. Not necessarily the racial part, but the hit. Um, nonetheless, it's pretty clear that Masoli has decided that uh, we're going to we're going to air this out and we're going to make sure everybody knows all the details about this for better or for worse and probably for better. Well, I think so, too. Here's a guy who's been in the league for over 10 years. Um, he has 
you know, been a backup quarterback. He's been a star. He's been a superstar, an all-star, you know, all the accolades. The only thing he hasn't done is won a trophy. But at the end of the day, he and I think 99% of the players on the field have some level of respect for the other person. What Garrett Marino did, uh, regardless of whether you think the hit is, is uh, egregious or illegal, I think it was a dirty hit. Um, the fact of the matter is the way he acted after the hit, which mm-hmm. was really, I think, insensitive. And obviously what he said on the field, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what was said, but it was, as Jeremiah said it, you know, hate-based uh, racial insults. I'll take his word for it because I know Jeremiah. Um, that that's, that's crossing the line and then some. He's a mile over the line. And so when I saw the four-game suspension, I thought, I know it's precedent setting. I know it's the longest in CFL history, but it's not long enough. I think if the CFL really wanted to set a precedent and send a message that this is not tolerated to the nth degree, it should have been for the rest of the regular season. And I think that would have been an eye-opener, and maybe Marino would have appealed that. He's not appealing this four-gamer. But if he got what would have been, I guess, 14 games or, or, or 15 games, I think that might that might have pressed the button in his situation to say, all right, I want to appeal this because I don't want to lose, you know, 15 game checks here, 15 games of getting paid. And and th- that would have put the Players Association in a very difficult pickle. Do they appeal this knowing all the undertones regarding the racial insults? That would have been very interesting. Well, you know what? And we got to go here in a second, as you know. Uh, this is one thing that in every sport I'm always puzzled by. The Players Association appeals these things, but the Players Association represents both of the players, the, uh, yep. the aggrieved one and the one who did it, and yet they always rise to the defense of the guy who did the act. And you're right. It would have put them in a very interesting position, especially if Mazzoli was going to be public. And he's paying dues to this same association, and he's saying, why are you protecting this guy? It would have been really interesting if that had come up. And it's Masoli who is missing you know, six more games or whatever it turns out to be compared to Marino. Both are still going to get paid, but at the end of the day, one guy's not being able or not being allowed to do what he loves because the other guy put him out. Really interesting. Uh, you can go read this. It's on, uh, well, go to Rick's, uh, you can find Rick on Twitter and he has reposted this. And then interestingly, the Rough Riders have now responded and say they're going to give a donation to Jeremiah Masoli's foundation, I guess. Uh, whether that's too little, too late or whatever, you, you decide. But it's all up there. Rick, thanks for doing this. I know uh, you've been up since, I don't know, two o'clock or something this morning. So appreciate you jumping on. You got it. Anytime. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, look, OK Blue Jays, let's play ball. Or OK Blue Jays, let's fire our manager because we stink at playing ball lately. That is, uh, that's what happened. Charlie Montoyo today let go from his job managing the team that was now sitting four games, only four games over 500. Had lost nine of its last ten clinging to a playoff berth only because baseball added extra playoff berths this year and really not looking very good at all. Dave Woodard has been hanging around. He's from the newsroom. He's stayed in here. Dave is a big, uh, big follower of this. Dave, are, are you a, are you a buyer in the firing of Charlie Montoyo? Is this a solution to all their problems? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that, no, you can't fire the players. Uh, certainly you can't fire all 24 of them on the team. So something has to happen. I do believe 
um, that they did need some kind of new uh, messaging in that in that team. You know, he came in uh, in 2019 and, and had a, a, a really uh, a rebuilding team that year. Right. I mean, it was the first time that we'd even kind of heard of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Kevin Biggio and and Bo Bichette. And, and they had really kind of not had um, an opportunity to, to get these guys up there. And I think Montoyo came in knowing uh, that it was going to be a rebuilding year, but that's why he was there. He was there for the young kids. He was going to help them grow into major leaguers. Um, I just think when it comes to, uh, you know, being out on the field and, and bringing that, you know, winning um winning attitude i don't know if he had that or if he was just going to be Mm. that that manager to kind of bring them into the big leagues and i think it's time to move past that uh they the blue jays announced that john schneider will be taking over on an interim basis which i found a little bit shocking because i didn't i hadn't really heard of john schneider since he wrapped up his time as the guy who played bo duke on the dukes of hazard so uh (laughs) not not the same guy he was up to oh not the same guy oh darn that was i was hoping that would have been a great story uh (laughs) I look here, here's the problem I have with this. I, I don't think that this was a Charlie Montoyo problem. I mm. think that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro handed him a broken down pitching staff that fell apart. You lost Ryu, you lost mm. uh, the, who's the other um, pitcher who's been awful at the back of the rotation. Kikuchi. Um, you've had, yeah, thank you. Um, th- this has been a mess. And this was the team that, you know, Vladimir Guerrero came into the season saying last year was the was the preview. This is going to be the main event right. or the, the real thing. This has been he, – he has not been handed a line. And I don't agree with everything he does, and I think his handling of the pitching staff can be a little wonky, but it's because his pitching staff is a disaster. And that, to me, is on Ross Atkins and on Mark Shapiro. And yet here again – it's the and I know how baseball works. I know how sports works. You fire the manager, you don't fire yourself. Right. But boy, I got to tell you, like they got to fix this, or else I really believe they got to be the next ones out the door because they have, for all the bluster and for a few good moves they've made, they have really shown no whatever it is to get the Jays over the top. Right. They, and- they talk a good game. But I think that where's the evidence? Yeah, and I think a lot of that you can sit there and say, well, he didn't have you know the players, they didn't have, but he's still managing like he did, and I think that was that was really the problem. I know that last year when there was um, an issue with the bullpen, they really didn't have many arms at all. Montoyo said we only have the pitchers that we can throw out there, and it's absolutely you're right, but you can't be using Montoyo. One of the things that uh, he's very good at is analytics. Um, that's how he got the job, really. He w- used to be in the Tampa Bay organization, which is known for analytics. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's great that Montoyo uses those analytics. But if you don't have the pieces to use those analytics, then you have to start managing based on your gut. And I don't think But that- do you believe, though, let me mm. jump in for a sec, because yep. even with the analytics, do you believe that it was Charlie Montoyo who was calling the shots with those analytics. I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. I believe he was the puppet who was getting phone calls and being told what to do by Atkins and Shapiro. And so once again, I yeah. look at this and say, he's taking the fall for their failures. And that's the thing about baseball that I don't think a lot of people kind of know is that it used to be, you know, like you had Sparky Anderson and, and right. all, like old time managers that would literally manage by guts. You know, they, they'd they sit there and say, well, this is the guy that's got to go in. Now it is such an organizational game that you're you're right. Literally, general managers are making moves 
uh, for you even before the game starts. Um, but I think that it's still up to the manager to do that out on the field, and I don't know if Montoya was able to do that. If Montoya had not managed the way that they wanted him to, like I don't believe that he had hardly mm. any autonomy. He was picked as the guy who would yep. do exactly what they wanted him to do. And you could say, well, bring in Cito Gaston because he's shown that he can win with some of that gut. Cito Gaston's not the kind of guy they want. No. Because he's not going to just follow the numbers. And, and I mean, this to me, I love baseball. I love baseball, but this drives me nuts about baseball right now, that it's just so much. It's almost like baseball has become the sport for accountants and, you know, mathematicians. Let the people play and occasionally let the manager make a decision that flies in the face of convention because it just, I think this is going to work. Well, I mean, that's what happened to Joe Madden in Los Angeles earlier this year. Joe Madden, if you're not familiar, he he won the Cubs a World Series for the first time in over 100 years, known as one of the best managers in baseball. But he likes to say that he goes by a little bit of analytics and a little bit of, by, uh, by guts. And, and the thing is, is that when you're... Uh, managing like that, and you have a general manager, you have a president of the team that says, nope, this is the way that we're going to do it, uh, you really aren't going to be around for very long. And and I, I don't know if that's what happened to, to Charlie. I don't know if he decided that he was going to say, you know what, I'm going to go a little bit more with my gut and came across a lot of arguments with the, the management team. I don't know. But it's one of those things that clearly it wasn't working, whatever they had going. And you did need to see a bit of a change. Mm. Uh, we got to run, but there was, uh, it was the series, I think with Seattle that they just finished mm-hmm. where you watch Seattle's bullpen and just guy after guy after guy comes out throwing 99, a hundred. Yes. And which is where baseball is now, whether you like that or not, that is where baseball is power arms out of the bullpen. The Jays don't have that. And then once again, I look and say, so Montoyo is taking the fall for an organizational failure from the general manager and president's office to provide him with what you need to compete in modern baseball. And then you say, oh yeah, but your mistakes cost us. Oh yeah, there's, I, lots, there's lots of blame to go around, Scott. I have no doubt about that. It's just when when you've got you know a team calling the shots, you got to have somebody to answer for it. Uh, but yeah, look for John Schneider, uh, not apparently the guy who played <laughs> Bo Duke in the Dukes in the Dukes of Hazard. That's that's really unfortunate because I would have loved for Luke and Bo Duke. You know, one is the manager, one is the bench coach. That would have been awesome. If, if who, it couldn't have been worse, you no. Know, and you know what? If the general manager and the president are making the shots, and why not? There you go. Let's. Uh, we got to take a break. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for jumping in. That is okay. Dave Woodard from the from the office. It's uh, well from the newsroom, not the office. Well, the office too. You know what I mean. Eric Ham, professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, implications of monetary growth with Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, thank you for doing this again today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So the Bank of Canada today, we're talking about the interest rate. Bank of Canada today announced it was going to raise the interest rate. We knew that was coming. We thought it was going to be three quarters of a percentage point. It was a full percentage point, which kind of made some people's eyes bug out. I, Truly, how much of a difference as far as effect on everything will that extra quarter point have more than we had expected to be there anyway? Actually, it's it's quite a bit. I mean, it's a really interesting topic to look at the differentials on how a one point rate hike can affect things like, say, a mortgage. So just to use a round number, if you have a one million dollar mortgage, 
which, you know, would have made my parents have a stroke, but today that's very average on a $1 million mortgage. And you have a five year term before you have to negotiate, you're going to pay about $32,000 more on your mortgage. And if you had a, a over, half a million, over those five years, over, over those, those five, five over those yeah. five years and the payments, well, depending on where you had your mortgage could be about a couple hundred dollars more per month. And for some people that's not significant, but for most of the living, breathing, walking world, that's very, very significant, Scott. And so um, what I'd ask people to do is really listen carefully today, because after the announcement, two things should have become very apparent. Number one, what the prime minister had to say, I thought was frankly, blatantly false. And I don't know why he brought up things like climate change. This has nothing to do with climate change. This has everything to do with monetary misperceptions that happened during the pandemic and supply chain failures. Now, the Bank of Canada, they can help with the first one, with the monetary misperceptions, but the Bank of Canada can't do anything to help with supply chain failures. So really, what the good listenership should do today is realize the Bank of Canada, to use an overused expression, is all in on inflation control. They only have one bullet in their gun, and I hate to use that analogy, and they fired it. And other macro variables, they can be damned. And that may include over time employment and output. But the Bank of Canada has been very clear today. We are going to suppress spending. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why I believe. First of all, yes, I was listening to the prime minister and he listed off a series of things. Interestingly, all of which were out of the government's control. There was not one thing that he listed that was potentially putting the government of Canada in any way responsible for any iota of what we're facing, which I find a little rich. But nonetheless, the the green thing, the climate change thing, seems to be because they could help people with with the um, inflation if they were temporarily to dump the taxes on gas and bring the prices of fuel down, which would then drive the price of food down because you have to get it to stores and would drive the price of everything down and us driving, but they don't want to do that. So you've got to include environmental issues or else you have no excuse for not doing that. I really think it's, it's a part of what the government is trying to do to just, you know, play the magician game and send the focus elsewhere, just like a magician does when he's trying to do some trick. Don't look over here, look over there. So the government's giving you a laundry list of things that they'd like the population to hang on to, where they can say, you see, it's not our fault. But your point is really well taken. He listed off a bunch of things that that had absolutely nothing to do with this inflationary spiral. We printed too much money during the pandemic, and we gave it away and then we have the supply chain failures. I mean, he did mention the war with between Russia and the Ukraine. That is a very small part of it, but at least it's a part of it compared to the other fantasy land comments he mentioned. But you're right, too. I, I do want to come back to what you said. Something could be done. I mean, right now is a time that people are one paycheck. Many people are one paycheck away, Scott, from insolvency. And the government could do things to put money in their pockets. I'm not a big purveyor of one-time handouts, but sometimes it's necessary when it's the difference between losing your house or being able to feed your family. But I think as much as the Bank of Canada has come out and said, we are going to suppress spending, I think your government in Ottawa has come out and made it very clear to say the inflation in this country is not our main concern. 
during the election, the federal election and the time before when we were having this enormous... Now, again, COVID happened and we can debate all day long about whether all the actions were warranted or not. That's a, a fair discussion to have. But one of the arguments made was we have to run up this massive deficit. We have to build this enormous debt, taking us up to like $1.3 or something to deal with this. But don't worry because interest rates are still really low and the growth is still there and everything else. Is the interest rate increase here going to affect what we as taxpayers pay on our national debt or somehow are those two separated? They're relatively separated. I mean, all interest rates are related. Everything starts at that prime rate that the government raised by 1% today. And then all the rates attached to it filter through the system right up to and including what you pay on your mortgage or you pay to borrow money or you pay to borrow buy a car. So, yeah, they're all related. But, you know, the government is a pretty major player in things like the bond market and the equity market. And so the government, to use, again, another oft-used expression, the government can get a deal on their debt. When you're a sovereign government and you have your own central bank, you can run up whatever deficit you want. That they're right. What they're wrong is saying that there's no ramifications to that. That is absolute garbage and the government knows it. So that's a really roundabout way of answering your question by saying it's related, but not directly. But yes, please do not uh, ever, ever to the people listening, lose track of what's going on with the debt and the deficit once again terrible, terrible miscalculations on the part of our central government. Well, and, and look, Ontario has a massive debt as well, and we built up the debt here as well. I mean, there's you look around and just the amount of money that we as taxpayers are spending just to service the debt that could be spent on other things. I, I keep coming back to this, and I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but when interest rates go up, that's more money we have to spend on things that are just basically flushing it down the toilet. That's right. And our government seems to be responding to a, a new, relatively new theory in economics called modern monetary theory, which is debts don't matter. Deficits don't matter. The government should be the lender of and employer of last resort. And so the hell with debt and debt payments. What we have to do is singly focus on keeping the economy employed. Now, that sounds great in theory, but in reality, the problem is, is that's not how this is going to play out, whether it happens today, tomorrow or in six months. And I don't have a crystal ball. These interest rate hikes are going to start to have an effect on hiring. And when that starts to collapse and employment starts to collapse and real gross domestic product starts to collapse, then we're going to be in something called stagflation, which is the single worst economic outcome. And if people don't think it can happen Remember the 1970s? It happened, and there's ominous parallels today, Scott, that we're heading right back there. Eric Kam, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics, Implications of Monetary Growth with Toronto Metropolitan University. Your business card must need to have a, like a fold-out page to cover all that. Uh, really, really appreciate the time for your, from you today. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, TMU grad. There, yeah, true enough. Yeah, uh, it was Ryerson once upon a time, but yeah, I am now a TMU grad, so I feel so much better about that. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Dr. Kieran Moore says that fourth COVID dose eligibility is being expanded if you're 18 or older between 18 and 59. Starting July 14, you can get a second booster if it's been five months since the last booster or three months since recovering from a recent COVID infection. There's more. Um, I want to bring in Colin DeMello. He's 
Global News, Queens Park Bureau Chief. Colin, um, maybe I'm just a simpleton. This is starting to sound complicated. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the entire vaccine rollout from the very beginning has been very complicated because the government has been doing this in a staged and phased approach. They wanted to ensure that those who are at the highest risk of COVID-19, those who live in long-term care, as an example, have underlying uh, health issues, um, or are immunocompromised, they would have first access to the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so here we are now in the seventh wave of COVID-19. And the question is, is, should I get a booster or should I not? And that's where the complexity of this really lies. Because, you know, the chief medical officer of health opened it up to those who were 65 plus, opened it up to those who were immunocompromised a, a while ago, but now for the rest of us, everyone 18 plus, that big question is, should they get it or should they not? And the chief medical officer of health isn't being explicit. He isn't explicitly recommending it to the general public, nor is he saying you shouldn't get it. What he's saying is, you know, if you have underlying health concerns, if you, um, you know, have diabetes, as an example, if you're a smoker, if you've got lung issues, if you've got uh, kidney issues, heart issues, then, yeah, you should probably go get COVID-19, uh, the vaccine, because you are at a higher risk of actually ending up in hospital with some kind of a serious uh, illness due to uh, COVID. But yeah, I mean, the rest of us, that's the question. Well, so far, I, I got to say, it's, it's kind of sounded a little bit like boarding an airplane. Like if, you're, if you've got a baby or if you're in the military service or if you are in the first four rows or you have numbers one through 12 or whatever, please board first and then we'll figure out, you know, like it, it's, you're right. It's not all just if you feel you should get it, get it, which, um, you know, and then, and Colin, the other part about this, and, and this is where I wonder if, if Kieran Moore, and look, I'm not, I'm not taking shots at him. It's the, it's the situation here. This has been going on for so long now that I wonder how many people have just tuned out and said, you know what? I, I, I don't really know whether I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm being told I should get a booster shot because it'll prevent me from getting something. But then I see the prime minister getting booster shots and saying he's got a second case of it. And you know, is it really worth it? I, it, it there seems like there's just been so much that's put in front of people that I don't know who's listening now. Yeah, well, listen, we can we can tell you almost in numbers how many people have tuned out. Uh, there are 15 million people nearly in Ontario and 5 million people who are eligible to get the first booster. So the third dose of the vaccine chose not to. Five million people who were eligible um, have had already tuned out. And I would venture a guess that, you know, five million plus uh, a couple of other million people would say that they might not want to get the fourth dose either. The, the one thing the chief medical officer of health is saying is that perhaps in the fall, the vaccine that comes out then might be, you know, the, the, the smarter choice to get. So what the chief medical officer of health is saying is the vaccine in the fall will include the original COVID-19 strain plus a, a part of the uh, Omicron strain. So you would then be protected against the very latest strains of uh, COVID-19 and, and, you know, you might be not only preventing it from uh, being transmitted to others, but it might also prevent you from actually catching it uh, yourself. So his suggestion today, whether he was saying it, uh, you know, like flat out stating it or if it was the subtext was maybe you want to wait until the fall if you're healthy and you're not worried about your your health right now with COVID. Maybe you want to wait until the fall to get that vaccine. But you're right, Scott. I mean, I think a lot of people have, have tuned out. A lot of people are focusing on get-togethers and parties and going to mm -hmm. concerts and, and, and other big uh, events and vacations that I, I don't know if they're necessarily 
wanting to roll up their sleeves to go get another dose of the COVID-19 vaccine because the government itself is not necessarily saying you need to get it. And, you know, if the, if the top doctor isn't saying you need to get it, uh, you, you know, that might be advice enough for a lot of people. Has there been any indication that Ontario has been toying with the idea of saying you must get this, that that for your full vaccination now, the new... I know the federal government, I think, talked about it, that, that maybe we're going to redefine full vaccination as now three. Has the provincial government considered that at all? The provincial government has not said anything publicly as to what they're going to do with uh, the definition of fully vaccinated. Uh, the premier himself has indicated in the past that he doesn't want to change the definition. The chief medical officer of health has kind of leaned in that direction as well. I mean, listen, in, in, in Ontario, and the chief medical officer of health will say this, in Ontario, you know, fully vaccinated meant getting two doses of the vaccine because that's what was required for the initial vaccine to be, um, you know, fully discharged, for it to be fully effective, you would have needed the first and the second dose in conjunction with one another. The third dose and the fourth are repeater shots. They're boosters, just to remind your system of, you know, the fact that COVID-19 is, is, is still out there and here's the, you know, uh, the code that, you, that your body needs to look out for. Um, I, I would venture a guess that here in Ontario, it, it would take a lot for them to change the definition it would take, um, you know, the federal government having to do it and strong recommendations from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization for them to do it. But they would do it with a lot of reluctance because thus far, as, as we've seen, that would mean five million people would be ineligible for whatever fully vaccinated meant. And I don't know if the province wants to take that risk. Yeah, that would be, uh, boy, that would take some guts because, you, you know, what we don't mandate the flu vaccine. And I think at this point, a lot of people would say, and, and you know, fair or not, a lot of people would say, we don't have thousands of people in ICU anymore. People die of the flu. People are dying of this. And we don't make you take that one. I, you're right. I think it would be a really tough political thing to try and make people have an extra one or else you can't go to a theater, can't go to a restaurant, can't go on a plane. That would be tough. Well, and you have to think about what the starting point is to even get there, right? At this point, we have no public health restrictions in Ontario whatsoever. No masking, no social distancing, no lockdowns, nothing. Uh, the chief medical officer of health had said, if, if in the fall they start to see ICU capacity starting to be threatened, and right, right. now about 30% of ICU beds are free, available, so if they start to see that being threatened, then they might start with universal masking. So, you know, masking is, is the, the least of the public health measures that they could impose. So if that's their starting point, it would take a long time and a big, long fight before they got to the idea of, OK, let's make three doses now the mandatory uh, baseline. And then Absolutely. there's the other question, Scott. OK, if three doses is fully vaccinated, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're prevented from going into a business, going... See, that's 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 right. That's Colin, we got to run, but you, that's right. It, it becomes a huge fight again right across the board as to what every definition means. Uh, I wish we had more time. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News. Colin, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I think back to when I was a kid playing hockey. I was a goalie. I was, yeah, I was okay. 
I was okay. I mean, I joked that I was the safest goalie in hockey because the puck never hit me. Not, not a great way to play net, but I was okay. But I always think back on free agency day in the NHL and think, my goodness, I should have committed myself and really tried to get better because you look at the money that is flying around today and you realize, oh man, did I ever whiff. I mean, I could have been sitting at home right now or at my cottage somewhere up in the Muskokas being signed to a giant new contract for the next few years, paying me millions of dollars or... I could be here. And I love being here, but, uh, you know, that sounds pretty sweet. Nick Alberg is a freelance NHL broadcaster, fantasy hockey, and NHL betting analyst, and co-host of the NHL Fantasy on Ice podcast. He joins me now. Nick, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Uh, I think the one thing we've learned today is that life's pretty pretty much back to normal in terms of business in the NHL, that's for sure. Uh, You think? I mean, looking at some of these guys, like there are some, look, there are some good players out there, but even, you know, Mikhail Sergachev, a guy who Tampa has, a defenseman, eight years times eight and a half million dollars. You're right. Life is not bad if you're Mikhail Mikhail Sergachev right now. I mean, and other guys, like there's lots of guys making just tons of dough today. It's amazing. Yeah. And certainly that is one of the storylines is that you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning and just the body of success over the last couple of years, there's ability to re-sign their own guys. And certainly Sergachev uh, had one year remaining on his deal. Um, You know, it makes a lot of sense, you know, considering what the market looked like last summer when it comes to the big name defensemen, you know, Seth Jones is among those people. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, some other guys were on that list as well, and I think it fell in line with what, you know, the market had set last summer. Uh, certainly Tampa making some noise as well in the form of Anthony Sorelli and the contract extension and also Eric Chernak. So it's like the rich get richer, and somehow, mm. some way, they continue to be able to keep these guys too. Eight years for all of them. I mean, it's it's like it's amazing. We're just like, you know what, you're going to be 80 and you're still going to be playing for us, but they'll probably still be competing for a cup final. The one group now, you know what, I'm I, I'm probably overstating this, but around here, the one group that appears to be looking for the nearest bottle of hard liquor is Maple Leaf fans, especially mm-hmm. with their goalie situation. Uh, they have two goalies now. Matt Murray uh, was traded for from Ottawa yesterday, and they signed Ilya McKay. Uh, not Ilya McKay, they left, uh, let him go. Uh, they got, um, who am I talking about here? Ilya Samsonov, another yeah. Ilya. Uh, to be their second goalie. But, you know, a lot of Leaf fans saying, you know, we had Jack Campbell. He was okay. Why not keep him? This is the, these, are, these are chewing the fingernail down to the nub times for Maple Leaf fans. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, I crunched the numbers on the amount of goalies that have been with the Maple Leafs under Kyle Dubas. May 11, 2018 is when he officially took over as a GM of the Leafs. We're looking at 12 different netminders. And again, as you mentioned, there'll be two new ones coming up next season. Obviously, there's massive elements of risk with both guys. Certainly, Matt Murray is, is somebody Kyle Dubas knows really, really well from his days with the Sioux Greyhounds in the Ontario Hockey League. But effectively, I think Kyle Dubas is putting his job on the line. And I think everybody involved, you know, from Dubas to Keefe to everybody else, I think they comprehend that if the Maple Leafs can't win a series next spring, uh, they got to start with making the playoffs. It's important to bring up considering what's happened in the Atlantic today. But if they can't win at least a round, uh, their jobs are in serious jeopardy. But I think there's a massive, massive risk that comes with uh, you know both these guys, which is scary to think considering a lot of people think the Leafs are a cup contender. Well, okay, so you mentioned the Atlantic where the Leafs play. Yes, Ottawa much better today. Detroit much better today. Um, 
Boston's always been good. Tampa is in there. They're, you know, we know what they are. Montreal, that's a mystery because if Carey Price plays, they're probably a contender. If Carey Price doesn't play, they're probably back looking at the number one pick or something like that again next year. But it's a really, really tough division. Uh, and you're right. I mean, you look at the Leafs, and I think every year goaltending is a is a bit of a mystery because guys can be great or guys can be awful, and it can be the same person in two different years. But you'd like to think that you have some idea, right? Mm-hmm. That that's that's the difference here. You'd like to think you have some idea what you're getting, and I don't know if they do. No, I'm with you. Like I think clearly they've exhausted all options, but I said this last summer when they brought in Peter Morazic, A, the guy's always hurt, which I think proved uh, true. Yes. And yes. B, I mean, Freddie Anderson's the same type of situation with Carolina. The guy, you know, he's allergic to playing Stanley Cup playoff games or important games. He doesn't <laughs> play in the playoffs, right? So it comes full circle here, and I think we're having the same conversation conversation again. Like, I know people are going to say, well, Matt Murray won two Stanley Cups, but five years ago was five years ago, including a, a world pandemic for two and a half years. Like, I, I just think they had exhausted every option and felt that there were more pros than cons of bringing in somebody that they knew in Matt Murray. But don't get me wrong. Like, there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of what ifs. And, again, that's very, very problematic when, you have four guys signed, the core four, and the clock is ticking on Austin Matthews and free agency two years away. Yep. So uh, we say this every summer, but a big season's upcoming for the Maple Leafs. And you mentioned it, a lot of depth adds today. And that, and that was expected, um, you know, obviously with paying those four guys, the bottom six is probably going to look different every season. But I think Leafs fans have every reason to be nervous with what's going on with that team right now. Nick, you, I, I am probably way older than you, and so this is going to be a reference that may or may not mean anything, but I grew up, my favorite player to this day, my all-time hockey hero was Bernie Perrant, the goalie for the Flyers when they won their yeah. two Stanley Cups. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Clark, who played with him, later went on to be the general manager of the Flyers, and it always amazed me that Bobby Clark could never understand that the reason he is wearing two Stanley Cup rings is not because of Don Selesky or Bill Flett or... Dave Schultz, it was because Bernie Perrant in net won him those two Stanley Cups. He was Smythe Trophy winner both years. And Bobby Clark, in all the years he was GM, never could figure out, we have to get a stud goalie to carry us over the line. And I see the exact same thing with this Maple Leaf front office. They just seem incapable of saying, this is the most important position in modern hockey. We have to start here with something solid, and then everything else can fall into place. I get your point, uh, but I think there are a lot of teams in that conversation throughout the league. It just, you know, it, it just it's really, really hard to find Andre Vasilevsky. It's really, really hard to find Igor Shosturkin. Like, there's a couple, five, six guys who are perennial number one, legit stars in this league. And then, uh, and aside from that, it's a lot of tandem systems. Uh, I think it's one of those things easier said than done because glass half empty, half full. Okay, you look at maybe drafting a guy, but how, how often does that work out? I think obviously everybody's looking to trade for a guy that stature, but clearly teams want boatloads, you know, and prospects and picks and all that stuff, um, you know, to even look at trading that. And then on top of that, I I mean, if you, chances are, if you have a really, really good goalie right now in the NHL, you're a good team. So why would you, why would you want to deal? Yeah. 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 Fair enough. I think it's a, it's always a fascinating conversation, but I think it just comes down to, you know, to the fact that there's just not many out there, quite frankly. Nick Alberga, freelance NHL broadcaster and co-host of NHL Fantasy on Ice podcast. Nick, thanks for this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lately, and this year, one of the big issues, unsurprisingly, I think, was the healthcare system in this country. They are all, I think, certainly here in Ontario, certainly in other places, they are all under immense pressure to improve their healthcare systems because healthcare falls to the provinces. And yet, almost to a person, they will say, yeah, but how? Where is this money supposed to come from? We have all these expenses and all these things that we have to do. We need help from the federal government. It is a it is a bit of a stare down. How are we going to fix the system when nobody seems to want to be the one to have to pay for it? Ultimately, you know who pays for it. It doesn't matter if it's the feds, the provinces, or the municipalities. Ultimately, it's us. But none of them want to be on the hook to pay for this. But what about our system? I want to bring in Dr. Sean Watley. He's a physician. He's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. He's also a senior fellow with the McDonald laurie Institute. Doctor, thank you for the time today. Thanks again, Scott. Let's, um, we've got a few minutes here and we're actually, you're going to be here for a second segment. So we have some time. Let me, let's go back for a second. Is our, this sounds like a stupid question, I grant you, under the circumstances, but is our healthcare system really falling apart or is that an overstatement? Are we just seeing the same problems we've always had, but because of COVID, it seems bigger or is there something different going on now? So no stupid questions and, and you already know that. I think our healthcare system has been struggling for several decades now, but to your point, are we seeing something new? And I think we have to admit that there is an element of something new right now. We're looking at, in Ontario alone, a backlog of over 20 million services. So 20 million services that haven't been provided. On top of that, we have people who've been let go because they weren't able to comply with COVID uh, guidelines and that sort of thing. We also have people who are retiring early because they're just burned out, exhausted physically, emotionally, mentally from what's been going on for two years. So yes, we're in bad shape for the last couple decades, but I think we're even in worse shape. You know, we keep talking about the straw that breaks the camel's back. We've had many straws that I thought would have broken the camel's back a long time ago, but certainly COVID gave our system the stress test that we all feared was coming, and I believe we failed. You know, it's interesting you say that it's a couple decades. Uh, you know, back in high school, I cut my head in sports and I had to go to the hospital. And back then, you know, when we're hearing, oh, you know, everything's working great. I, I remember waiting hours to get in because my injury was messy, but it wasn't life-threatening. Like, it's not like there was a time, once upon a time, when you simply walked into a hospital and got hordes of doctors and nurses waiting to see you. We've always had waits. Well, uh, well, great point. Now, Scott, I, I, I understand you're 25 or 30 years old, so, so it's understandable <laughs> that you... <laughs> yeah. A little more than that. In, in high school. No, no, but seriously, uh, you know, uh, Albert Schumacher, when he was um, uh, president of the Ontario Medical Association in 2001, gave a speech in downtown Toronto, and he said, listen, when I started practice in the 1980s, there were no weights at all. And, and okay, so that sounds extreme, but I've talked to many other surgeons as well, and they said, you know, we'd be on call on the weekend, I'm thinking of a surgeon at our local hospital, orthopedic surgeon, someone says, hey, I've got someone with a broken hip up in Aurelia or wherever, can I send them to your hospital? He would say, send them in, you know, send them in, no questions asked. Starting at around the 2000 mark or something, around the year 2000, you had to speak with bed, with allocation services or bed allocation services at your hospital and say, do we even have a bed? 
Do we have an OR team on call? Do we have nurses that can actually come in? Is the post, uh, you know, the the uh, recovery room going to be open if I operate on someone tonight? So there are all sorts of nonsense and administrative hurdles that had to go be go, you know, had to be done just to get people the care they needed. So I think, you know, again, if you're a young person, absolutely hours of waiting, and it depends on where you were. Um, but there has been a change over the last uh, several decades. But again, even with that, and to go back to your first point, it's not like this is just COVID. Like, it's not like the delays and the problems just started two and a half years ago. This has been building. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, this has been building since 1977, as you know. So just geek out on people for two seconds. The, in 1948, the Fed said, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of money provinces if you start building hospitals, and we'll pay for half of it. And then in 1957, they, they said, we will pay for, the Fed said, we will pay for 50% of whatever care you provide in hospitals. And then in 1966, with the Medical Care Act, the Fed said, listen, you shut down your insurance programs, and you pay for whatever medical care is being provided, and we promise to pay for 50% of it. So once all the pillars of Medicare were in place, the federal government realized, holy smokes, this is costing a lot of money. So in 1977, the first Trudeau government said, we can't pay for these blank checks anymore. So they shut down that uh, that approach of 50-50. They never actually paid 50. They got as high as about 36%. And instead, they said, we're going to give you block grants. And they also transferred some tax points. So gave the provinces a little more power to raise money. But since 1977 and going forward, it's been a continuous battle. In the early late 70s, early 80s, the provinces started doing hospital user fees, and 1.3% of, of funding for doctors was coming out of extra billing. And so then they passed the Canada Health Act in 1984 to close that down. But really, all the pillars of this fight that we're seeing were in place as of 1977. I said a few moments ago that the irony of all this is it's all different levels of government fighting over who pays for what, but ultimately it all ends up coming out of our pockets. So... How is it they can't figure this out and someone just says, look, it's the taxpayer paying no matter who sends them the bill. If it's the federal government sending the bill, we're paying that tax. If it's the provincial government sending the bill, we're paying that tax. Why can they not figure this out? (laughs) So actually, I was so glad that you said that in your opening. There's a famous economist who wrote um, a book in the early 1970s. uh, uh, Fuchs, I believe, was his name. But he said, ultimately, the public pays for health care. No matter where the money comes from or how it flows, ultimately the public has to pay for it. You can't expect government to pay for it or businesses or whatever. If you charge businesses, they pass the, the fee on to the customer. So aside from the extremes in the population, so the very, very poor or the very, very wealthy, the middle group of the voting public pays for health care. It doesn't matter how that money flows. And we have to address that fact up front. But even more than that, it's not just about money. It's not just about money. It's money and control. And that's what the fight's about. So the provinces want funding without accountability. The feds want to pay for things, uh, not pay for things, but have all the say in the matter. Doctor, just before the break, you said something that was Uh, it was perfect. It was bang on, which was that it's not just about money, it's about control. And so whoever is going to be spending, both sides want more control. However, with more money and with more control also comes the criticism if things don't go right. And I see that everybody would want to have the control over this. I don't see though that either the feds or the provinces want to be standing there taking the criticism for things that go wrong. 
Yeah, exactly. So provinces want the funding without the accountability. We want to be able to still blame the feds, right? Darn it, those feds, why don't they give us more money? The feds want to be able to have control without having to pay for it. And currently they're paying about 22% on on the bill, which is kind of like a tip, but yet they get to say what's on the menu. So I think step number one is you have to say, okay, guys, who's going to be responsible here? Because the public needs to know who to complain to when care isn't delivered as promised. And again, I I go to my point that it just seems, and and you said it too, if all the money is coming from the taxpayer, why not then just say every province is responsible for health care and they can tax accordingly or whatever and the feds are out of it and then you don't have dueling things or like or or vice versa or do it the other way but it just it, it seems to we've we've just made a system more complicated than it needs to be well to your point and this has been proposed before and i've also proposed it in a pre- previous paper does it make any sense to collect a whole bunch of money from the provinces but you know the feds collect a whole bunch of money for example the gst just about $40 billion right now, and then turn around and give it all back in health transfer payments of just <laughs> over $40 billion. So if you got rid of that and we did a GST-HST tax flip, obviously there'd be some details to work out, but now accountability would be clear. You can still get fiscal federalism using some other equalization payment process. So we still want to help the provinces that can't raise funds. Of course, I'm not saying we let people die and fall off the edge of Canada, but no. it doesn't have to be. Go ahead. No, no, I, I like you're, it's, it's so interesting that you say this because you also, I, I'm assuming, I have not looked into this, but that when all that money is collected in the federal government and then sent back, I'm assuming there's not one moderately paid federal bureaucrat who's handling all this. <laughs> there are reams of highly paid people who are then taking a portion of that money away that we don't need. It's like a middleman we don't even need. And that's more money you back into the system, even though if it might oh, be a Scott, minor you're, you're amount. You're too cynical. You're too cynical, Scott. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, interestingly, uh, or earlier in the show, pardon me, um, we had Seamus O'Regan on, who's the, uh, the federal, I can't even remember what his title is now, um, the federal minister of labor. And he was on because he was talking about, we're having this shortage of workers in the labor industry, building buildings and things like that. One of the things he said, the reason I bring this up, one of the things he said is we need literally tens of thousands of laborers to go into that right now. We're hearing the exact same thing. In healthcare, we have been hearing now in the provincial election, we need 30,000 PSWs or some number like that. We need tens of thousands of nurses. We're way short on doctors. And the doctors that are coming out of medical school, I read yesterday, most of them don't want to go into family practice, particularly in rural areas. How do we find all these people to try and, you mentioned a few moments ago that that people are leaving the industry. How do we find these people to replace them? Well, first of all, the people are there. I mean, there are tons of people in our community alone that are uh, semi-retired or just recently retired. I said this during the COVID pandemic when we were looking for bodies. Oh, my gosh, we're going to be flooding the hospitals. Where are the people who are going to care for these patients? All they have to do is put out a notice saying, hey, we're desperate for people. Please come in and work. So it's not just a matter of we don't have bodies. We can have a separate discussion about how many bodies we should have, how many workers we should have in healthcare, and that's a separate path to go down. One of the big problems we're facing right now is how do we manage knowledge workers? 
workers. So knowledge workers, and this I'm going to geek out a little bit again, uh, they're motivated by intrinsic motivators. So even in your job, you don't just take your job because I was going to pay you a million-dollar salary. No, you want the opportunity <laughs> to, to excel, right, to be creative and explore and feel in control of your environment and choose guests or kick guests off, press the, you know, the delete button or whatever. Same thing in healthcare. We don't want to be micromanaged. We want to feel good about the job we do for patients. That means having the resources available to provide the care that's ex- expected of us and that our patients want from us. So all these intrinsic motivators play a far bigger role in staff satisfaction and retention. And simply talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to pay them an extra a hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever it is, it's not the same for people in a knowledge-based industry. Let me assure you that if they said it was a million bucks to do this job, I would do it no matter <laughs> if they made me do it wearing a whatever stuck in my ear. I don't care. Uh, we, we just have a minute left here, but um, to to that, all right, so we, we, we're reading these stories that there are people out there who want to do it, that there are there's interest in this. What if medical schools, I mean, right now, it's really, really almost impossible, unless you're a genius, it's impossible to get a spot in a medical school. Does it make a big difference if someone gets in because they have 98% or 96%? Could we open more spots to say, we have to create more doctors? If you've got 96%, you're probably pretty darn smart. We're, we're pretty sure you can get through medical school. Let's make sure we create more of you. Yeah, so those the difficulty to get into a Canadian medical school is not because we only want super, super, super smart people. It's difficult to get in because we ration the spots. We say, uh, and, you know, smart people in a room somewhere say, well, we only need so many thousands of new doctors this year, and so therefore we will only graduate that many. The famous Bear Stoddard report in the early 1990s said, hey, we have way too many docs. It's costing too much money. Let's, sh- let's shrink medical schools by 20%. And then you know what happened in Ontario towards the end of the 1990s, 1.5 million people with no family doctor. So part of it is a failure of central planning, and that's why we don't have hmm. the... Uh, the resources that we need to provide care for people who need it. It is a fascinating discussion. I wish we had much more time to do it, and we will. We'll uh, down the road. We'll pick this up again because it's really interesting and it's really important. Dr. Sean Watley, grab his book, by the way. When politics comes before patients, why and how Canadian Medicare is failing. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Folks, thanks for being here today. Thank you to Will for lining everything up. Will's been doing an amazing job. He always does. To Tom, who's been on the board today, who's kept us on the air. Thank you to the guests, all of them all amazing today and to you for sticking around and listening we really do appreciate your time we know you could be doing other things but we are delighted that you stuck around and we hope you'll be back at three o'clock tomorrow i'll be here hope you'll be with me talk to you then